From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. In Buddhist thought, that we can talk about two kinds of compassion. One compassion is uh, a quality of the nature of our mind. By by nature of mind, I mean mm, uh, compassion that's uncontrived. It's like the the warmth of uh, of the sun comes with the sun. It's not that it gets added. But just if there's if there's a fire, then there's warmth. It's the nature of fire is to be warm is warmth. So the nature of our mind is compassion. It doesn't. Uh, the other uh, the other aspect of compassion is compassion that we <coughs> that we. Uh, give rise to in the face of circumstances. We can say caused, it's caused compassion. Uh, This uh, first compassion, we could say, uh, like make it uppercase, it's all capital compassion, just to distinguish. Uh, that's not contrived, it's not caused. It just comes comes with having a mind and it's in its natural state. okay then natural means what? Every, everything now natural is a big a big word, a big consumer word. To rethink natural mind. Uh, I guess in some ways that uh, originally, I mean, originally I'm old and older, but when something was natural, then that meant that it wasn't processed. Just it was something that was there just as it is. I'm just thinking out loud now because about words, you know, if I, I keep using these words and I'm so used to it, I'm not sure maybe the, the current associations don't work anymore. <clears throat> but I think it, it falls into that. It's, I'm just, I think I'm okay. Uh, natural, our natural mind means mind uh, before anything happened to it before it was processed, actually. In the Buddhist language, we say conditioned. And it's not the, uh, what do we call that, tabla rosa? It's not that there's, that mind is like a blank slate, that sort of 
who is that, Descartes or some, somebody? Uh, it, it, it would be, you could say it was a blank slate if it wasn't for the fact of compassion. Or maybe you couldn't say it was a blank slate anyway. There's other reasons why you can't. Anyway, I don't want to... But uh, uh, compassion, we say, is, is, a, is an aspect of mind's nature. Also, another quality of mind, just to, to round it out, is openness. Openness. Mind is completely open. It's not, our mind is not something, or the mind that we're talking about, is not something that has edges or boundaries or limits. That's why we can say that uh, uh, Compassion is all-pervasive. It's all-pervasive because mind's essence doesn't obstruct it. And this openness is not uh, nothingness like, like space, like outer space. It's not like outer space because this openness has a quality of knowing. This is a Buddhist uh, view of our, our own individual mind's nature. There's this openness, this knowing quality that extends limitlessly, and it's all compassionate, limitless compassion, ever-present ever-present knowledge, ever-present compassion, ever-present openness. It's not something that closes. It's, un it's our uncontrived nature. And of course, the next, the next, or the first question is, well, what happened? That's not how I'm experiencing myself. And of course, in, in Buddhism, uh, one who, uh, since it is, since the nature of our mind is uh, all-knowing, that means that, that that absolute quality of our mind is knowable. And it's not knowable by someone else, it's knowable to the, to the mind itself. <clears throat> Who realizes uh, that absolute nature Who you know, someone who manages to uh, realize that in its natural non-dualistic fashion is called Buddha. That's what a Buddha is. It's a, it's a uh, a Buddha is someone who has realized in a thorough, ongoing, 
way that nature and it said that at that point then every all the, any all of one's actions all of, of buddha's actions are genuine always beneficial uncontrived say spontaneous and always lead others to the path of their own awakening that's how what that's what beneficial means when in the buddhist thought or on the process of the buddhist path it's at that point at the point of uh, awakening and what the word Buddha is a Sanskrit word uh, Buddha means awake like Buddha means someone who woke up right. so we can say uh, an awakened being or an awakened one it's almost we can we distinguish it's not really an awakened person a Buddha is a person is someone who doesn't realize their true nature. Call a person or an ordinary being, and a Buddha is someone who has realized that nature. So they're an awakened being. Uh, so there's that. That's the. If we talk about Buddhism and what Buddha means, that's what Buddha means. It doesn't mean that you... Uh, enlightenment doesn't mean that you've, you've gone anywhere else. You're, you are completely... Finally, you've come home. You've realized your true home, your true nature. So from that point of view, then, until that occurs, then we are, uh, what do I say, we don't have that feeling. We are, um, what is it, uh, discontent. Everything seems complicated. This familiar? I'm not alone here. <laughs> you know, everything is complicated these days. You know. After the after the Buddha of our sort of historical period, Shakyamuni Buddha uh, achieved the uh, that awakened state, and they uh, say he, he he dwelled he dwelt within that state and didn't talk or didn't say anything to anybody for many months. And then it began to arise to benefit others by through communication. And he taught, and the first thing he taught was 
the four, what, what we call the four noble truths, really means the four truths of the Buddha, the four truths of the noble one. Uh, from the, in other words, from the point of view of awakening, what can you say to others? You know, since this uncontrived, uh, open, pure, compassionate nature, I know we've attached words to it. You know, the, the teachings of Buddha is, uh, have tried to scramble for words that would uh, not necessarily or not at all describe enlightenment, but to to describe how to engage, how to use one's life to achieve it. Hmm? So the teachings of Buddha are about how to achieve enlightenment, how to achieve our own pure nature that's ever-present. not to uh, talk about necessarily how amazing Buddha is and how we should idealize and, and worship and so forth. And Buddha is, and Buddhism is not. Buddhism is a, a path to achieving the same goal that Shakyamuni did or Prince Siddhartha did before he attained enlightenment. And so his teachings were very... Uh, practical. It's not about memorizing and knowing doctrine and catechism about Buddhism. It's about practical application. And so the f his first teaching was basically about, well, life is complicated, he said. It's not simple. It's no wonder, of course, we're going to be discontent. It's so complicated. Of course, we're going to suffer. We're stuck. As long as we're stuck, we will feel that everything is complicated, problematic. Everywhere you turn, every time you turn around, there's problems. Even, I don't know, if we breathe out and there's a problem. We have to breathe in again. Even there. You know, why? Why don't we just continue? What's all this constant uh, adjustments? Everything needs to be adjusted constantly. Nothing ever gets finished. So that kind of, uh, not just gross, uh, you know, getting into accidents or getting sick, but even the most subtle aspects of our experience are subjected to something that causes us to keep moving on, always in motion, we're always moving. <clears throat> so even just to sit still and notice that we're breathing, which is probably the only thing that we can be sure of in this life. We're still not content to just know that. 
there's got to be something more. My mind is much too busy to just know one thing. I want to know, you know, that we think about the past, we think about the future, uh, we wonder about the present. It's many, you know, it's, it's very complicated. And even if we look at one thing we're doing, it's not really one thing we're doing. It's actually, uh, it's, it's one theme we're involved with, but there are many, many things going on at the same time. Even we do something for 15 seconds, and within those 15 seconds, we have many conflicting thoughts and emotions that contribute to how those 15 seconds were carried out. We're not like totally one-pointed, unless we shut down, unless we're sitting in front of a screen, you know, and something we're completely dead. I mean, I don't mean uh, writing, or so I mean uh, uh, like uh, cinema or uh, uh, TV. Why couldn't I think of that? It's passé, I know. <laughs> uh, so that was, Buddha brought that to people's minds, brought that to people's attention. That was the first thing he said after attaining enlightenment. I mean, it seems so pedestrian to say something as like, hello, yes, of course, you know, there are, you know, things are complicated. I'm a very busy person. So I thought, so get on with, you know, what's enlightenment? I'm too busy to hear about my life. I want something other than my life. You know? Transport me. But no, he says, no, you really need to check out and prove to yourself that things are problematic. Know that. That's the first sort of wisdom that you will know. We're always taking, looking at the parts of things to see how to put them together and so forth. Our, our knowledge is all about parts. We discriminate and discern. And we are basically trying. You know, we, 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 we're trying to do our best at figuring things out. And we're never sure. So we have a lot of hope and fear. I hope this is going to work. I'm afraid it won't. Did I do too much? Did I over, overfix? Did I underfix? Overgive? Undergive? So the Buddha says, okay, pay attention to your life and the life of others and see how there's this ongoing motion, ongoing movement that's discontent, dis, what is that? Uh, dis-ease, you know, disease. And he gave that advice as if if you did notice it, you would see it would be true. And that's what one of the first uh, pieces of advice that, that in Buddhism we try to appreciate that. 
because it's so fundamental. It's the first thing that came out of Buddha's mouth after his enlightenment. So it has some significance. And he didn't say, okay, I'm telling you the way things are. Didn't say that. He said, this is something for you to know. So that means you have to uh, prove it to yourself. Because once you uh, prove uh, that, then your natural instincts would be to wonder why. And so, and so Buddha pre, so Buddha anticipated that with the second point, which was that the reason why we're so discontent is because, basically it's because it's, it's, it's got something to do with the way our mind works. He called it uh, clinging. Why are we suffering? Why are we discontent? Because our mind clings. It fixates. And so just like he said, okay, no, uh, see this word that Buddha, that's used, this Sanskrit word is for the first teaching there was a dukkha, dukkha. A dukkha is a, one of those words that has many meanings, but it's always something to do with, with problems, discontent, vexation, uh, suffering, pain. Uh, all the inner, you know, kind of psychological uh, and physical, biological. There's, there's a, there's dozens of words probably that that could fall under that category. Uh, even Buddha included birth in that. Uh, birth, old age. Lamentation and death. And just the toil and travail of, of our workaday lives, where things just never uh, stay the same. Something's going well, and we relax, and then it fails, you know. It breaks, or it's, you know, we have to upgrade, or something. You know. uh, and it's not the fault of the manufacturers. You know. It's not the fault of our parents. It's you know, it's the nature of this life. I mean, that's why Buddha. He kind of said, okay, you know, you can't project your, your discontent, you can't sue everybody for your first noble truth, for your suffering, you know, for your... <laughs> uh, so the reason is 
something that we've become so used to about our mind that we need to have it pointed out. It's not, it's like, you know, sometimes we have some injury or or even, you know, like a psychological trauma or something, and then we we have shoulder issues or hip issues or, you know, different things. And for a period of time, we've, we've, we've suffered under it and maybe even tried to uh, uh, remedy it by different ways. But then we work around it. You know, we do this work around and over the years, we, we just, you know, we have ignored it for so long that we just stay away from certain move, 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 movements, say, something like that. I think and, uh, when Buddha was teaching, uh, it was to cut through how we've done that with our whole life. And it's not that... Uh, mm, And part of it is because we haven't been aware that there's anything else to do with this life except deal with it as it presents itself. I don't know if this makes sense or not yet. I'll try. That's why Buddhism's coming from the point of view of someone who has reached a full potential, who have accomplished what could be accomplished. which is to basically accomplishing your mind, realizing the absolute nature of your mind. And so to come around to that as a possibility, first we need to examine what, we, what we've been dealt with, what has landed in our lap, and strip away our uh, wishful thinking about it. And through analyzing it in a almost scientific way, or uh, yes, that's why I think the persistence of Buddhism over these thousands of years, especially nowadays, is because of, of that it's very logical or it's 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 very scientific in that way. Buddha first told us that there were certain symptoms we were having that we didn't possibly realize fully enough. And if you don't realize something fully enough, you look for resolutions that are inadequate because you don't really understand the the depth of it just like if you have uh, you know you're constantly battling blackberry i don't know what grows around here you know blackberry bushes you know coming in your in your fragile garden and you just keep trimming it off you know you don't realize that there's this this mother load underneath, you know, about ten inches down that is persistent and 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 voracious, you know. Uh, but you just keep doing and complaining about how 
there's always these blackberries that come. Uh, somebody comes along and says, hey, dig down and you'll, you'll see what the root of your problem is. You know, basically, we're lazy. You know? So we need to be uh, informed about things like that. You know, we don't look. So that's what Buddha says, oh, life is problematic. You think maybe some people don't have problems. You think, you know, you, this, uh, you look and see. You, know? you peer into the lives of everyone, things that seem to be working out, people that you might envy, people that you're jealous of, and so forth, and you'll see flaws. And then, so you, you uh, knowing that is some form of knowledge. And since it has to do with uh, some degree or another of just uh, basically pain, it's painful. Life is painful in that sense. So then, just like with any pain, uh, then you want to know what the cause is. You don't want to just keep trimming around, buying, you know, new coats of paint every year, you know, covering up the underlying uh, flaws. So that's what was Buddha's first two teachings were to, uh, to try and see that there actually is a problem, but that there is a why. There's a reason for it. It's the effect of something. What is it the effect of? It's not, of course, he's coming from that absolute point of view. This is not true. This is not true truth. This is, is relative truth. And so then this uh, second noble truth, which was the cause of the first, has to do with our mind. So it's like getting, it's like being told that there's, there's a root that we can't see. And it accounts for all the qualities, all the good experiences, all the happiness and comfort, and all the miserable, all the hostile, aggressive. Uh, and uh, greedy and all the problem, uh, painful experiences. And even all the neutral experiences, all are rooted in the mind. So that's, I think, the first and to, to see what Buddhism is, is uh, where Buddhism or where Buddhist practice is coming from, where the Buddhist path is coming from, is that's the basis. Buddha went on then to talk about, to, to point out, uh, basically these first two are basically Buddha, those are like the Buddhist facts of life. Okay, the facts of life. Then the third was, is the, that Buddha uh, expressed the 
the fact that it's possible for that system to cease. A third noble truth is the cessation of suffering, dukkha, the cessation of complications. There's even one uh, stage in Buddhist practice, kind of an advanced uh, stage of, of uh, mind called utter simplicity like that you know uh, so anyway he presented this uh, as almost we could we could almost say it's a goal it's a cessation I'll, I'll put that in quotes you know, goal you know uh, and so it has, similarly, say, if we have a sickness and we, we wonder what's wrong with us, we're just not feeling right, and then we go and, and the doctor asks a bunch of questions so that basically we're, we're, we're on the level, we're communicating on the level of symptoms. Symptoms. That's the first noble truth. That's what Buddha first said, the symptoms. Then... You want to know what's the cause. Okay, the cause has something to do, like when you go to a doctor, you know, it's either some lifestyle cause or invasion, some kind of a cause, some balance cause, some disease, some uh, whatever, you know. But this is the cause of why those symptoms are bothering you. And your next question is, well, can it be can you get rid of the cause, you know? Is this it or what? So that's why Buddha then, the third uh, advice he gave was that uh, there is the cessation of the cause. I mean, it's, it's simple causation. If you don't want something to happen, then don't enact the cause. It's impossible, I mean, in the, in the uh, what would you call it, a proposition of causation, you can't have an effect if there's no cause. You can have a perfectly tilled garden, lots of nutrition, you know, uh, fertilizer and so forth, little clotches over it to protect it. You can do all kinds of things and the right sunlight, the right moisture and so forth. But if there's no seed, no amount of praying or ritual or anything is going to make, you know, corn and tomatoes come if there's no seeds. And similarly, if you put corn and potatoes in there, expecting to get squash, <laughs> no amount of prayers or rituals or belief systems or, or uh, you know, wishful thinking is going to make it because the seed does not match your expectations. So in the same way, like 
to be doing harmful things, expecting to receive the rewards of something positive and good and happy, is similarly, we, we, uh, you know, we, we, that we call neurotic, I think. You know, that's, that's neurotic. And so this all has to do with cause and effect. And so if you, if you uh, eliminate the cause, like the second noble truth is fixation, mind's, uh, mind's fixation, if you eliminate that, then you eliminate the first, you eliminate the suffering, which is the third noble truth, is the accomplishment of that, called the cessation. So then you would say, the next thing you would say was, well, how do you, why is that? What's the, what's the, what's the, how do we get to the third noble truth? So that's the fourth noble truth, which is the path. The path. And Buddha, Buddha, in that particular teaching, he talked about the Eightfold Noble Path, having to do with uh, our sort of observable behavior, kind of that, on that lifestyle choice level, right action, right speech, he included right livelihood. Because it has to do with cause and effect. So the first thing is on an outer level, our behavior, we have to uh, avoid negative actions, negative speech, and uh, harmful, harm-doing actions that we do physically, and then verbally, right speech. And so these areas of, uh, of the spiritual path are adjusting ourselves to accomplishing our mind's nature. Uh, have to do with moral discipline, basically, doesn't it? Learning what what actually is harmful, where everything's very distorted and problematic. We don't even know what's necessarily, it's not so clear, actually. It's not so clear at all. We have many cultural uh, expectations, many, uh, uh, you know, lots of Things that pull us in, in action, into action. Uh, different loyalties, different allegiances, uh, agreements, and things. So it's very uh, tricky. And so this, these in the eightfold path or the spiritual path that leads karmically or causatively leads to the cessation of suffering. Uh, part of those are having to do with a moral discipline. And then there's uh, uh, like right concentration, uh, right meditation, right effort. Uh, 
right effort means effort towards what is good and virtuous, which leads us always to our mind. Again, our mind is the source. If we have issues, uh, if we're careless with our speech, uh, we can twist our tongue and sew our lips and do all kinds of things to avoid it, appreciating that it just comes back at us, you know. You know, we, we, we lie and then suddenly people don't believe you anymore. You know, even when you, when you unnaturally are saying something true, uh, so uh, learning to identify what we do, like physically and and uh, verbally, and then try to avoid, cut, or to, to not do negative things verbally and physically, then we still that that actually what that does is it it guides us to notice our mind. Because we, we say things, and we say, oh, I didn't think. Well, actually, you did think, but you lost control of that. You didn't have control of that thought. You didn't know you were thinking. In Buddhism, there's a, I don't know in Buddhism, but we say in Buddhism somewhere that uh, uh, every action, physical and verbal, every action, the mind got there first. <laughs> Uh, so just the simple act of, of refraining from physical and verbal actions points to your mind. Because you, up until a certain point, we don't even know we have a mind. It's almost like we have never been introduced to our mind. So adopting a, a moral discipline, which, which implies choices, which implies choices that promote our true happiness, our true ability to benefit others. That's the point of uh, moral discipline in Buddhism. It's, it's merely a means to an end. It's not to become a perfectly behaved person. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the point is to become a genuine person. Someone who's working and engaging in the world from from a pure place, you know, this uncorrupted, open, compassionate, all-knowing nature of mind. Sometimes we think maybe, and and I've heard people say, "Well, I always say those kind of things. That's just the kind of person I am." So when people tell me, and I hear this because I, when I go to prison, that's almost a, a, the theme song of prison, you know, that's just the kind of person I am. It's like a thing, you know, it's like a defense 
mechanism. What, what they're saying is, I have no mind that I know of. I don't. I don't have a mind. Actually, I'm just. I'm, I've just been created this way. And so that's why it's kind of beautiful to, to decide not to do something, that you know is, uh, even if it's very subtle. You know, just to to know your, just to see how your mind is going to do it first, and then you go, ah, there you are. My boss, you know, just walked in on me. I just, I just noticed, you know, uh, you know, I've been basically, I've been out of control because my uh, behavior and my mind were not cooperating. It's like somebody else was pulling the strings. In Buddhism, they say the, the mind is the the, they say king. I don't know. The mind is the ruler. And the speech and the, the uh, and action, physical behavior, are the servants. So, if you want to change the activity that the that the servants are doing, you, you go to the ruler. Change your mind. Change your mind, and body and speech follow. So sometimes then it's through uh, adjusting our behavior that we are introduced to our mind. This concentration and right effort. Right effort means effort meaning directed towards taming the mind. Uh, some people are m sort of very mental. I mean, in a, in a good way, you know, not mentally or problematic, but... They're very mental. They're very thought. You know, it's all about thinking, and and they have a very have a proclivity to to concentration and meditation. And then through that, then that begins to change their speech and behavior. So these are. It's not necessarily a formula. Uh, it's just. It's all about people's. Uh, faculties and so forth, what, what works, everyone's complicated, right? Uh, then the last two of this eight, eightfold path are right view and right intention. These are the most, two most important parts. These are what make everything work. Uh, right view and right intention. So, uh, and of course, right view. There's levels of that. Even initially, the the uh, like right view may mean realizing that the mind is the ruler of the body and speech. That's right view. Wrong view would be thinking that you're just who you are and I'm unchangeable. I was born that way and that's the way I'm going to be and I can't be changed. That belief in uh, permanence. Basically you believe that things are permanent, like your personality is permanent and the, so forth. So right view would be that 
the view that everything is impermanent. Right view would be that everything is caused. Caused. Everything that occurs had a cause. Everything is an effect of a cause. Things don't occur because of outside intervention or outside influence. If it seems from the outside, that's caused. That had a cause. Everything is involved. Everything. Everything. If something is a thing, then it's involved in the process of causation. And thing also, there's gross things, like bodies and chairs and floors and so forth, pillars and posts. And then there's subtle things like thoughts, emotions, time. Time is a subtle phenomena, subtle thing. And they're all governed by causation. The most subtle, discrete phenomena is still caused. Another view, another correct view, or right view, or actually the word right view has become, it's actually pure view, or pure uh, speech, pure livelihood, more right is okay. Uh, the view that everything is interdependent. Everything depends on something else for its existence. It's another window into, it's like causation, cause and effect is one window. And also seeing that everything is interdependent is, is right view. Nothing, ex there's no thing that is independent. In spite of all the struggles for independence uh, that have all failed, but we keep pressing on. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, from the philosophical or from the point of view, of view, uh, uh, things, uh, there is, you know, there is no independent phenomena. If there were, it would be absolutely true. It would have to be permanent to be true. It would have to be independent, and it couldn't be composed of parts. That's what, if, some, if you find something like that, then you can say, oh, that's true. Otherwise, everything is impermanent, composed of parts, interdependent with other things, 
and subject to cause and effect, which brings out or which uh, makes obvious the Buddhist conclusion is, or the Buddhist conclusion of the view, the real, the true view is called non-self. Like there is no abiding, permanent self-nature that identifies a thing as being what it appears to be. That's called right view. I think Buddhism is famous for that. Oh, Buddhism doesn't believe in the self, people say, right? The second noble truth of fixation, uh, that's the root of suffering, is fixating on the idea of a self when there is none. It's not we're fixating on this self and we need to become unfixated from self. There's no self. Ego. I think, I'm not sure about psychology so much, but as we would, people nowadays, we say ego, ego, egoless. Okay, anyway, that's sort of the, what do you call it, the geography of Buddhism. Practice? Why practice compassion? I have to cover that because it's getting late and that was the topic. I'm not going <laughs> to deceive you into coming here to <laughs> think about compassion. But if you think compassion means what? It means altruistic. I don't mean this absolute compassion. You may not believe that or regardless. But from a functional point of view, uh, practicing compassion is beneficial. It's a good thing. It's good to be compassionate, to practice compassion, to overcome being not compassionate. It's good to do that because it promotes the cessation of suffering. Because suffering is caused by fixating on a self. Even if you don't care, you don't believe that, well, but there is, there is a self, it's fixation I don't like. That's fine. I mean, Buddha discovered that there was no self to be fixated on, but there was fixation. It's like there's addiction. We could even say, uh, now maybe thin ice, but a drug, a drug addiction, okay? We can definitely say someone is addicted, but we can't say that, that's an, that there's an addict. I don't know what that, for what it's worth. But it's the same idea. We're fixated on a self, but we have to realize that there was no self there in the first place to fixate on. We don't 
find the self, and then defixate. Okay, now I'm not fixated on myself anymore. How come I'm still not happy? <laughs> you know, we re the, re the, the wisdom of enlightenment is the wisdom of non-self, knowing that there is no self, that there never was. The, par not the parable, the uh, metaphor that a Buddha taught, I think it's from the sutras, the Buddha's teaching, is mistaking a rope for a snake, or vice versa. Yeah, you see a, a rope, the light is not good, it says, and uh, somebody walks in and it's a multicolored rope, and you think, immediately you think it's a snake, and run, tell everybody, broadcast it, uh, start a movement. You know, <laughs> down with snakes, you know, snakes, you know. Uh, run for office. You know. <laughs> and, but when you collect yourself, take a deep breath, turn up the light, take another look, then you see that there never was a snake in the first place. It's not that you see, oh, it's a rope, but wow, what am I going to do with the snake? <laughs> you don't have to do anything about the snake. The whole thing was a fiction. And that's exactly the idea of non-self, fixating on what is not there. It's just like when you're out... Personal experience. You know, you're shopping with your partner or your spouse or somebody, and you thought the agreement was that we would meet here at a certain time, you know, at this at this certain place, and you're standing there, you know, just completely, you know, upset, and then the other person is somewhere else, completely upset, you know, and uh, you know, it takes a lot of uh, co-counseling to. Uh, <laughs> Resolve that so that, uh, but it's two people operating off of their truth, you know. Uh, so, and if you think of, if you think then, well, okay, uh, uh, cultivating compassion, you know, you have a little bit of compassion, and you make it more. You have no compassion, you make it a little bit. What, uh, as part of the process of causation, you know, as individuals who are buried in the, or governed by causation, and since compassion, maybe, uh, what we mean by compassion is uh, yearning, you could say yearning for others not to suffer. Okay, that's the working, that's what I mean by compassion. Love, I haven't mentioned love, but love means wanting others to be happy. And compassion is not wanting others to suffer. In order to cultivate compassion, or when we do cultivate compassion, karmically, say, cause, from the point of view of causation, since Oh man, since a two, uh, 
it's this law of contradiction, okay? We, we should appreciate the law of contradiction. Like if you, if you uh, as much as you turn the lights on, that's how much darkness doesn't exist. They contradict. Light actually contradicts the dark. I don't know if you like that word, but I, I like it because it's provocative. <laughs> you know, it, it completely contradicts darkness. It's not that this chunk of darkness is replaced by the light and then the darkness like, goes outside into, you, know, you have to have a special darkness egress to, you know, like a building code thing where you need, <laughs> oh, this opening is too small for your cubic yardage, all your darkness won't have be able to go out quickly enough when you turn the light on. It's not like that. It actually contradicts it. And according to, and it's, a, it's in the realm of karma, causation, because you know, we, we always do things percentage-wise. You know, so you put a little one candle, and then there's that much darkness contradicted. You put a 500 water, on, and then that much darkness is contradicted. You do virtue, that much unvirtue doesn't exist. See? So you do something altruistically. Altruistic means with no self-interest. Like, just on your own, just wishing uh, someone, you know, you're, you're either provoked to not want someone to suffer because you have a relationship with them, and so, of course, it's questionable. Sometimes that can just feed your fixation. So when we talk about cultivating compassion, we do need the juice of, of samsara. We need, the, 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 we need to be involved in fixation and suffering in order to become free of it. So when we, when we can arouse a certain amount of yearning for others not to suffer, and we grow it. Oh, I can't stand it when my child has a fever. Then we think, wow, I can't, I, all, so many children have fevers tonight. You know, there's hundreds of thousands, probably children who have fever just like mine. And just like I wish my child doesn't have a fever, then I wish the same for all of them. And you try and do that. You can. We have that capacity. Uh, even these uh, brain scientists now see how, how much plasticity there is in our ability to, to develop compassion. Karmically, what we're doing is we are contradicting our self-interest. We're reducing our belief in a self by instead opening it up that compassion to others. And, as it says in Buddhists, make it immeasurable. Because beings are measure, immeasurable. So you take a small, juicy incident that really provokes your feeling, tone, and then grow it either grow it, oh, all members of all my friends, and all my friends, all the people in my town, all the people in my county, all the people in the, you know, even including your enemies. 
those who stand in the way of your happiness. So that it becomes unbiased. Usually in training and compassion, first we train in equanimity by going through certain uh, thought processes to uh, that again that contradict or antidote our preferences that antidote our prejudices you know, and see how and we look for okay like what's one sort of common denominator that all every everybody has is people want to be happy that that's probably a a safe unifier for people you know not thinking that well what i mean by happy is much different than what they think of as happy you know they're when that little puppy jumps on you know Hitler's lap or something. He had a feeling, you know. That. That. That's what everybody wants. So you you kind of hang with that idea rather than how different everybody is. But pick something that is the same. And usually we think that everyone wants some form of happiness. Even little uh, amoebas, you know, they move towards the warmth or the light or something. That's their, that's their level of happiness. They have a mind. I think they have a mind. Uh, and so that mind wants satisfaction. So it moves towards the warmth or the light or whatever it is. And that's true for all beings, not just people. When a baby camel, when the mother camel sees a baby camel, they just go completely crazy with happiness. They get lost in the desert. You know? uh, so that, to really unify, uh, make, uh, yeah, equalize friends and enemies. We're not talking about friends and enemies. We're talking about mind possessors. You know, those who have a mind want happiness also on a relative level and really cultivate and then just sit with that and believe you know really uh, work with that to, to uh, uh, hold that as actually true it's not making up some philosophy and trying to believe in it uh, but uh, it's it's something that's true and you can't validate it by, I mean, why do people do bad things? It's because they want to be happy. And then also, that also can lead to appreciating that uh, all beings that have a mind, the nature of that mind is open, compassionate, all-knowing. That might—that's a little bit philosophical, perhaps. But uh, it—it's it, where it—it's where it leads to. The more you realize your own qualities, 
then that, that's the qualities of mind that come from the mind. That's called, in the Tibetan, uh, called Chungchup Sem, means a bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, that's what this training kind of falls under the category of. Well, bodhicitta in, in Sanskrit and Tibetan, uh, I mean, Chungchup Sem, they translated it as. Chungchup Sem, three words. Chung means uh, purified means that all, uh, because of bodhicitta, bodhi actually means enlightened, and citta means mind. But in Tibetan, they translated bodhi according to the meaning of it. Some things they translated according to the literal, the literal meaning, but a word like bodhi, they translated according to the meaning of it, what it means. So they translated it chungchup, Chung means that everything, speaking in simple terms, everything negative has been refined away, has been purified. And chup means all, uh, all accomplishments, all qualities have been perfected. That's what Buddha means in, in Tibetan also. Sonje, same meaning. Is everything that's negative is refined away and everything that's say positive has reached full measure and sem means mind chungchup sem bodhicitta and chungchup sem pa at the end means somebody who's doing that and pa in this case is is the definition of it is a hero a hero Courageous person means it's chungchup sempa. In Sanskrit, they say bodhisattva. English, we would say one, English always takes more words, right? <laughs> you know, one who, in, who, uh, one who has embarked on awakening, like that. And so you really have to step outside cultural expectations, political expectations, territorial expectations, and equalize everyone. Uh, relate to others from the point of view of mind. Uh, you know, and that means that you have to understand your mind. As much as you understand your mind, that's as much as you see how others' mind. How you feel about yourself is very much informs how you feel that others feel about themselves. That's why from a point of view of one who is fully awakened, they see all other beings as being fully awakened also, but not knowing it, and suffering. So Buddha saw everyone as suffering. They're suffering because they're not awake to their, what, what their potential is. Just like a parent who sees their child just w wasting their time on trivialities when you know they have certain potential and how much effort it takes to 
to get them to realize the potential and what the success rate of that is. You know, it's like we need to have hundred, you know, dozens of children just to get one to realize the potential. <laughs> you have enough children to have one of all kinds, but maybe one of them will realize their potential. But that's what Buddha, that's the compassion of Buddha. That's what, that's Buddha's compassion was wanting others to be happy and knowing what that happiness was. It's like it says in the Shantideva's, it's a way of the Bodhisattva text. It says in the first chapter, it discusses the qualities of bodhicitta. He says that uh, even a mother can't conceive of bodhicitta for their child. They can't even think that that great. You know, all the the wishes that a mother has for their child, they can't conceive of of bodhicitta for them. You know, this idea, because parents, you know, his his take on it was that usually parents they want their children to show their success in, in culture, you know, in culture. They, like, what's your, what's your son or daughter doing? Well, he's a bodhisattva. He doesn't really have any attachment. <laughs> <coughs> He's not jealous of anyone. He doesn't envy anyone. He's not. And like, it's a, you know, you call that a life? You know? As if you have no jealousy, no envy, no desire, no uh, aversion, it's very hard to sustain a relationship. <laughs> so this, uh, uh, but anyway, this compassion as a, as an element, as a factor on the path, can be seen not as an end in itself, as a method to antidote self-clinging, fixating on the self. As it does that, one's natural compassion arises. And that merges with your training, and so you're you continue training and your compassion becomes more genuine. Whereas in the beginning, it's very contrived, let's face it, but that's okay. That's how the path works, you know, millimeters. It's all about millimeters, little drops, little moments. Not huge, tearful compassion. It's, it's a small little overcoming of bias, you know, overcoming of prejudice towards, you know, we're usually prejudiced towards those who are suffering and prejudiced against those who are causing suffering, you know, the oppressor and the oppressed. We take sides. Our compassion is biased towards the sufferer. When in fact, it's the oppressor that's creating new sources of their mind suffering. The oppressed is experiencing 
previous causes. So it's usually, they say, our compassion is usually misplaced. We have someone who is creating new karma to suffer. And one of the principles of causation is that the effect of an action is always greater than the cause. Which means like if you hit somebody with a 10-pound bar, the consequences would be the equivalent of getting hit by, say, like a 100-pound bar or something. I mean, that's the idea. It's like one small spark causes a forest fire. So when we hear, you know, what's going on, and, and you know, it's so easy to find uh, and for, you know, uh, objects of, meta, of, of compassion, you know, because it's either people are suffering or people are causing suffering. So really train to meditate, to meditating mean get used to feeling compassion for those who cause suffering, because their suffering will be much greater. That's why, you know, in cycles of time, suffering collectively becomes greater. Okay, so this, uh, I think we'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, is that, did, did, uh, any questions? I don't want to leave you uh, uh, with questions because everything is impermanent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know what the future is. We have schedules and that's just uh, an example of, of Bad Buddhism, <laughs> and, uh, uh, making schedules, assuming that, uh, oh yes, we'll be here next month, same time, same place, you know. We don't know. Revenge? Vengeance? Uh, well, I can only, we, you know, we can only uh, affect people, or let's say, say this way, the way, mm, according to our relationship with someone and the interdependence that we have with others, that is how we can benefit them depends on that. Everything is interdependent. If I say something and it's just coming as if from outer space because I have no interdependence with someone, it doesn't mean anything. So I, you know, uh, so it, it all depends, I guess you could say, the more someone lets you into their territory, you know, the more you can, the more porous you feel someone's boundaries are, then the more you can affect them if you have the, either the wisdom or the compassion.
I know, you know, there's stories of, of great masters of compassion who just by their presence suddenly everything changed. And in Tibet where there was, uh, you know, there's some places, some valleys that were famous because of the master that lived there, even he passed away, but even the animals don't, like the cats and dogs and stuff, even the animals are peaceful to each other. But you know, you and then you have you know you have friends. Like oh, I'm really you know if that person does this thing again I'm you know this, oh, well, well, you know like think it think it through. You know, even if you're successful, something will come next. You know, what's the next thing that will happen? You know, and then what happens after that? You know, and then what happens after that? You know, get people to think about causation. People, you know, like, uh, you know, our desires and our angers express themselves uh, and we're ignorant of the outcomes. Just like you fall for somebody that's outside the bounds of your relationship, like another person, okay, and you, somebody gives you advice, or you know you want advice, should you go or not? And you think, okay, well, what are the, what happens next? Then what happens? You know, then what happens? Think. It's it's just thinking about like a Buddha said in the second noble truth area. Part of clinging means, and it's called ignorance. Another word for ignorance is clinging. But, you know, he elaborated, and people, uh, beings, not people, all beings are ignorant, therefore they suffer. Okay? We can think ignorant means ignorant of our true nature, but also ignorant, or he, he said, uh, we're ignorant of karma. We don't know about causation. Therefore, we suffer. That's like I said down, like in, in Berkeley, I give a talk on insan not insanity. Uh, I don't need to tell Berkeley about insanity. <laughs> about sanity. It's called sanity in a crazy world, in a confused world, sort of my was it a post-election talk or something? He said, uh, and I said, and, uh, sane means to be able to, oh, I won't look it up, it's, but it, basically it has to do with, with appreciating and acting on the basis of an understanding of the outcomes of your actions. It's called sane, according to Webster which would mean insane, would mean not knowing the outcomes of your actions and acting, you know, acting without knowing the outcomes of your actions, which corresponds to the Buddhist uh, term ignorance. I couldn't help but notice that. So as much as you can get somebody 
to appreciate just one millimeter in that direction. You know, but it all depends on on your relationship. And the less ego-driven lecturing you do to someone, then the less ego you bring to it, you know, uh, like the less outrage, the less outrage you bring, you know, like because why you would not want someone to act out of vengeance is for their sake. So if someone knows that you care for them, they will be more likely to accept. But if you're like moralistic or what is that called, uh, self-righteous, then you just become another, another object for you become a conspirit part of the conspiracy of that, a conspirator. So sometimes you can't do so much, but anytime we just I'll leave you with this maybe. Anytime you do come into a situation where you know, because we have limited compassion, we have limited skillful means, limited uh, you know, we're all just these big ego people. Uh, but if you can't do some, if you can't inject some sanity in this sense, and some sanity into a situation with other people, then make an aspiration to be able to do it in the future. Sometimes that's all you can do, but you shouldn't overlook that, because that's how things happen. Everything is interdependent. There's one one quote says, everything is interdependent, or everything occurs because of interdependence. Therefore, everything happens through aspiration. So think about that. Prove that. Uh, see, yeah. If everything is interdependent, then everything happens from aspiration. Interesting. Okay, well, then we should, there's some uh, talking about compassion. They say, even, it says in the sutras, uh, for a person to even hear the word compassion is the result of great merit, great virtue accumulated over many lifetimes. Buddha said, just to hear the word compassion. And then to sit and talk about it and everything. We all have so much merit and virtue to do that. And so rather than, uh, like it, it, some of it is consumed because the effect has been felt by being here. You know? So then we dedicate that merit and this new virtue of sitting here, being patient and you know, not so easy driving and coming and so many you know compelling distractions that Sunday morning you had to choose you know so that's all your virtue so then dedicate that to the freedom from fixation of all beings 
uh, freedom from suffering of all beings. You know, may all beings attain unchanging happiness. It's not caused, but is their nature. So think that way, and then we'll recite. Uh, we don't have anything. Repeat after me, then it's safe. It's, it's very, you know. All the virtue of this practice, and all that is gathered throughout the three times, I dedicate to all beings without exception, so that they may attain enlightenment. Thank you. This podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.